Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Susan Jabinski and Megan Patchelock discuss risk in target date funds. Christine Benz speaks with tax expert Ed Slott about qualified charitable distributions. Ed Slott tells you why you should review your estate plan. And Jake Van Kersen compares Disney and Netflix stock. Let's get started. Here is Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. and Megan Patchelock from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. New research from Morningstar shows that the glide paths of target date funds continue to shift more heavily towards equities. What does that mean for investors? Joining me to answer that question and others is Megan Patchelock. Megan is an analyst with Morningstar's global multi-asset funds research team. Hi, Megan. Nice to see you. It's great to be here. Thanks, Susan. So let's start out by defining some terms. First, what's a glide path? A glide path is essentially the allocation across asset classes through a target date fund. So if an investor is choosing a target date fund and investing in it 40 to 45 years from their target retirement date, that portfolio will hold a lot of stocks. As slowly you get closer and closer to that retirement date, it starts to de-risk or add bond funds to the portfolio. And as that equity allocation shifts down, it forms the glide path. So now, Megan, there are, there's a difference between a through glide path and a to glide path. Talk about that. So a to glide path essentially stops um, shifting that equity allocation once you hit the target retirement date, locking in that equity allocation. Whereas a through glide path will continue to de-risk or lower the equity allocation for another 10 to 20 years past their target retirement date. So Morningstar recently published its latest target date landscape report. And in that, uh, you note that glide paths have become more aggressive over the past decade or so, meaning that they tend to have higher stock allocations. So how significant has that shift been over time? So on average, the entire glide path shifted up a little bit, meaning that across the entirety, it has a higher stock allocation. Um, But really, the equity allocation shot up much higher at the onset. So in that first target date portfolio, it went up about 7% Mm. to be 92% equities, whereas at that retirement date, it only went up about 3 percentage points to be about 43% equities. So, Megan, you say in the report that part of the reason for this shift has been an increase in the number of target date strategies that have through glide paths. Tell us a little bit about that. So target date providers are favoring the through glide path, and 28 of the target date funds that were launched over the past decade, four-fifths of them were actually with that through glide path. So are there other reasons, though, that the, the target date series tend to have more aggressive glide paths and more exposure to equities today besides that? We've seen more and more fund providers as well as investors become a little bit more comfortable with the idea of having a more aggressive glide path. And that could also be in part with the fact that equities have done so well over the past decade and interest rates have been so low. So then who are some of the more aggressive target date providers in terms of their equity exposure? Two target date funds that Morningstar analysts rate that do have that more aggressive glide path would be T. Rowe Price Retirement and BlackRock Life Path Index. So the T. Rowe Retirement Fund, that one actually shifted their allocation in 2020 
And at the onset, their equity allocation is 98% in equities. So if you think about it against the average, which is 92%, that is a bit of a significant jump. And in terms of BlackRock, they have an equity allocation of 99% equities in the beginning. And they actually were early adopters of that change, and they made the change in 2014. So then how should investors be thinking about target date strategies and those glide paths? Is a higher equity allocation a good thing or a bad thing? It really actually depends on the investor's preference. Um, if they can stomach the volatility of holding more equities, uh, a higher equity allocation could actually benefit them because they, they do have that longevity of being able to bounce back from a market dip and they also have a higher potential of having more gains with that higher equity exposure. But again, it really depends on if they can stick with it during the market drawdowns. Well, Megan, thank you so much for your time today and giving us a little bit of insight into the glide paths and target date funds and how those have sort of changed over time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here is Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. with tax expert Ed Slot. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Retirees love to hate their required minimum distributions, but the qualified charitable distribution is one way to find a silver lining. Joining me to discuss what a QCD is and how retirees can take advantage of it is tax and retirement planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Thanks, Christine. Well, Ed, let's talk about charitable giving in 2022. There were some uh, provisions put into the tax code in the wake of the pandemic, but some of them are going away in 2022. So what do people need to know about that? Well, in general, for a few years now, most people still don't realize they're not getting really any tax benefit out of the money or, uh, that they give to charity. So as you said, there were special provisions that ended in 2021 where you could uh, – even if you didn't itemize. And that's the reason most people weren't getting the tax benefit out of their charitable donations is because most people don't itemize anymore because the standard deduction for most people is much higher. But in the pandemic, they, they, uh, Congress put in some breaks where you could actually deduct even if you weren't itemizing 300 or 600 a joint return, it doesn't matter anymore because you can't do it anymore. That ended in 21. And also for people that gave so much that they could itemize, they were able to give up to 100% of their adjusted gross income. So uh, that could help people with big deductions. That's gone too. It goes right back down to 60% where it was before. So those provisions are gone, not on the returns that you're filing now for 2020. 21. If you already did that in 21, you're okay. But for your charitable giving now in 2022, they're gone. Okay. So we want to focus on one um, charitable giving strategy that is still available in 2022. This is the qualified charitable distribution. Can you talk about that and why it's so advantageous from a tax standpoint? Well, again, most people are not getting any tax benefit in terms of a deduction for the gifts they give to charity because they take the standard deduction. But 
thanks to this provision, it's one of my favorite provisions of the tax code. The only negative part about it, it's not available to enough people. So if you're giving to charity, and I always want to make this clear, I'm never saying give all your money to charity to lower your taxes. You'd be broke. I'm saying if you're already giving to charity, change the way you're doing it if you qualify for qualified charitable distributions, which is a direct transfer from your IRA to the charity. What's the benefit? Well, obviously, there's no itemized deduction because you're probably taking the standard deduction. But in this case, you get better than an itemized deduction. You get an exclusion from income. You're actually pulling money out of your IRA, not really because it goes right to the charity, at zero tax cost. But this is a gift you are going to make anyway. So it reduces your adjusted gross income. And that's a key number on a tax return that determines whether you qualify or get hit with other uh, benefits, credits, deductions, and things like that. So you take a direct transfer from your IRA to a charity. But the downside is it only applies to IRA owners, not people in company plans like 401ks. Only IRA owners and IRA beneficiaries who are 70 and a half years old or older. Now, I know people might be saying, well, don't you know that the SECURE Act raised the required minimum distribution, RMD, age to 72, but it did not affect the 70 and a half age for QCDs. So you can do that transfer up to $100,000 per year. So that's a big amount, a direct transfer, and it doesn't count as income. And if you do the ordering right, it can satisfy an RMD. For example, let's say your RMD for your IRA this year, if you're subject to them, is 5,000. And you normally give 5,000 to charity, just to make a simple example. If you do the QCD, the transfer from your IRA to the charity for 5,000, you don't even have to take the RMD. It's satisfied at zero tax costs with a gift you would have been making anyway. So uh, just to ensure that that QCD qualifies and satisfies the RMD, is there anything people should know about that in terms of sort of the logistics of executing this qualified charitable distribution? Yeah, even though it's a little after January, I'll give you my January is the new December rule. It's the first dollars out rule. Without getting too technical, the reason I say January is the new December, traditionally people think about gifting and charity in December holiday time. When it comes to QCDs, think about it early in the year, not late in the year. If you want to do what I just said, have your QCD, your charitable transfer, satisfy your RMD or any part of it. You can do more than the RMD or less, whatever you want. But if you wanted to offset, like in my example, the RMD, take the QCD first, because under the tax rules, the first dollars out are considered to satisfy the RMD. So in my example, if you took your RMD for 2022 of that 5,000 now, early in the year and then said, you know, I'd like to offset that with a QCD. You can't. You could still do the QCD, but you'll still have income on the RMD. Do the QCD first. So you mentioned that more and more taxpayers are using the standard deduction, not itemizing. How about itemizers in the context of the QCD? Can they take advantage of this? 
Oh, yeah. Any, the QCD doesn't stop you from itemizing, but even if you're itemizing, the QCD is better. I would do the QCD if you qualify, and then if you have bigger deductions that you can itemize, you can do that. Because again, the QCD lowers adjusted gross income. Itemized deductions don't do that. Okay. But you can't double dip, right? The same... So oh, not the same money. No, no. Right. In fact, uh, uh, you may have seen a story. Uh, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal or something where I was quoted on that. And they asked me, somebody wrote in, they said, well, I could uh, do the transfer, take it as an itemized deduction and QCD. That's double dipping. No, you can't do that. Okay. One thing I want to ask you about, Ed, is kind of the documentation related to this QCD. If people get a 1099, will it show that they made a QCD? How do they prove that they took advantage of this mechanism? That's a great question. It won't show. You'll have to tell your tax preparer, or if you're doing your own taxes, you have to know. Now, in the past, I thought this was an error because anything that comes out of an IRA generates a 1099-R form. So let's say you did the QCD for whatever the amount is, you're going to get a 1099-R, but you know it's not includable in income, but it's not coded that way on the 1099-R. And recently, IRS came out and said, that's intentional. That's not an oversight because the institutions, the fund companies, the banks, brokers that uh, issue these, they don't want to be the police. They don't know if you have a qualifying charitable distribution. They don't know if it's a qualifying charity. So they don't code it. Uh, you have to prove it with your own documentation and let your tax preparer know that you made that QCD and it qualifies. Okay, Ed, helpful rundown as always. Thank you so much for being here. Okay. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Next, Ed and Christine break down the SECURE Act and how changes may affect your estate plan. Hi, I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. The SECURE Act eliminated the stretch IRA, upending many long-held estate planning assumptions. Joining me to discuss some things to consider in the wake of the stretch IRA's demise is tax and retirement planning expert, Ed Slott. Ed, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Christine. Ed, I'm hoping that uh, we can talk about some things that have changed with respect to estate planning. I'd like to start by talking about the stretch IRA, which met its demise. Can you talk about what that was and uh, also why and when it became not an allowable maneuver for people from this state planning perspective. Yeah. When Congress created the SECURE Act, and here's just an observation I've had after studying tax law for 40 years, whenever Congress names a law, you can almost always bet whatever they name, whatever name they give it, it will do exactly the opposite. So when I saw SECURE Act, I was saying to myself, hold on to your wallets. And sure enough, they upended 30 years of really estate planning law for IRAs and 401ks and other retirement accounts by eliminating the stretch IRA, so-called stretch IRA. That was the ability, if you had an IRA, to pass it on after your death to children or grandchildren based on their life expectancy, allowing them to build and defer, just taking minimum distributions. But let's say, gave it to a 10-year-old or a one-year-old, they could go out 70, 80 years. Congress felt that was too good of a break. They shut it down. 
or anyone who inherited in 2020 or later. So if you inherited in 2019 or earlier, uh, let's say you were a grandchild and you have 50 years to go, you get to complete those 50 years. You're grandfathered from your grandfather's uh, inherited IRA. But if you inherited in 2020 or later, chances are if you're a non-spouse beneficiary, like a child or a grandchild, you will be stuck with this new 10-year rule. Everything has to come out of that inherited IRA or 401k or Roth IRA by the end of the 10th year after death. Okay. So I wanted to dig into that a little bit. People hear about this 10-year rule and they might think that they're taking 10% in each year. How does that work from a practical standpoint? Well, IRS just made this a lot more complicated. There's two versions now of the 10-year rule. For people who inherited from somebody who died before their required beginning date, say age 72, and and an, a different version of it, if you inherited from somebody who had already begun RMDs, let's say your dad already began RMDs and died at, say, age 75 or so, there's a different 10-year rule. If you inherited from somebody who died before their required beginning date, before age 72, the 10-year rule, let's say you're a child or a grandchild, it's a simple 10-year rule. You don't have to take any distribution, say, the first nine years, or it's flexible. You can take what you want. There is no, there are no uh, interim RMDs. There's one big RMD at the end of the 10th year. But recently, in late February, IRS just changed those rules if you inherited from somebody who was already over 72 and taking RMDs. In that case, for some strange reason, IRS says once the person who died started taking their RMDs. You can't stop the train. So for years one through nine, you're going to have to take required minimum distributions as if you qualified for the stretch IRA, even though you don't. So based on your life expectancy, but then by the end of the 10th year, everything again has to come out. So it's the same 10 year rule, but you have those required amounts for years one through nine. It's going to be very complicated for the new beneficiaries. It definitely sounds like it is. I want to talk a little bit about the estate planning perspective for people who want to try to if not replicate some of the advantages of the stretch IRA, at least um, help their heirs uh, defer taxes a little bit longer. What's on the table for them? What are some options that they should be considering? Well, for people that have larger IRAs, they may be in trouble because many of those people named trusts as IRA beneficiaries. They named them because they wanted post-death control. You know, I've had a lot of clients over the years, they said, look, I have three million in an IRA. I want my kids to get it and my grandkids, but I don't want them blowing it. I work too hard for this money. I don't want them squandering it. They're always worried about who they marry, lawsuits, bankruptcy, divorce, judgment, they can't handle money. So they name a trust. But now a lot of these trusts may not work as intended because they too could be subject to this 10-year rule. And if the funds stay protected in trust, it could be worse. Not only does all, do all the funds have to come out in 10 years, but it could be trapped at very high trust tax rates. Just to give you an idea how high trust tax rates are in 2022, you hit the top tax rates, 37%, after just about 13,000 of trust income if the funds stay in the trust for protection. An individual wouldn't hit that top rate till over 500,000 of income. So you can get the trust protection, but at what cost? So one of the solutions for that is to do a Roth conversion and leave a Roth IRA to the trust. Uh, yes, 
yes, you have to pay tax up front to convert to a Roth. But if you leave the Roth to the trust, you still have the same 10-year rule, but you eliminate the taxation, especially the high trust taxation, because you paid the tax up front. There you can get the post-death control, but still the funds have to come out by the end of the 10th year after death. Another option might be to scrap the whole IRA plan anyway, and that's what a lot of people are thinking about. In fact, I wrote about it in my book even as soon as the SECURE Act came out. I've been saying that for years, but now between that and the new IRS rules, IRAs, as Congress intended, have become a bad asset for wealth transfer for estate planning you may be better off if that is your if that is your goal in other words you don't need that money it was always earmarked say for your children or grandchildren you may be better off taking down some of that money at today's rock bottom low rates and putting it into a permanent life insurance policy and leave that to a trust for the children it's a much more flexible asset to use especially for a trust there are no rmds no rmd rules no trust tax rules and best of all no tax. So it's a much better vehicle to use if that's your estate planning objectives. You could also, if you're charitably inclined, use charitable remainder trusts if you want to give to charity because IRAs are always the best assets to give to charity uh, because they're loaded with taxes. So you could use one of these CRTs, but you have to be careful there. Uh, charitable remainder trust means at death, your funds would go to the CRT, no tax. And the CRT would pay out income based on a larger amount to your beneficiaries. But if your beneficiaries die early, all the funds go to the charity. So I wouldn't do that unless it was backed up, say, coupled with a life insurance policy on that beneficiary. In case they die early, the family could be made whole or then some. So uh, there are some limitations and costs to that. But those are some of the options to simulate or work around the uh, more complicated IRA trusts that are out there, many of which won't work anymore. Right. And you, you mentioned, Ed, that uh, perhaps the IRA isn't the ideal asset for, for people to inherit. Um, and you noted that actually taxable assets may be a better option in that instance because they do get the step up after, right. you, whereas the IRA is maybe a better option for charitable giving. Yeah, IRAs are definitely the better option for charitable giving because, again, you know, the foundational rule of all good tax planning, always pay taxes at the lowest rates. And IRAs are loaded with taxes. If you're charitably inclined, give those assets to charity and let your beneficiaries inherit more of the what we call the taxable, as you said, the other non-IRA assets where they get a step up in basis on the appreciation. They get relieved of all the uh, capital gain, the appreciation during the lifetime of the person they inherited from. IRAs never get a step up in basis. Okay. But also those taxable assets are nice charitable giving assets as well, right? Because the uh, person gets to take a deduction during their lifetime and, uh, you know, the, the assets. Yeah, all- except if you're older, you know, i sorry to say the older you are, the closer you are to the other door. So if you just wait a little longer, they're going to get that benefit anyway through the relief of the capital, uh, get the gain on the appreciation through step up in basis. Okay, Ed, great, helpful overview. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar. Lastly, Jake Van Kersen from Morningstar Inc. shares insights on entertainment and streaming services. 
At this point, it seems like the climb to be at the top of the streaming mountain won't end with a winner-take-all champion standing over their distinguished competitors. Instead, the race is about building a stockpile of reboots, beloved classics, and buzzworthy original series in an effort to reduce churn and keep the subscription numbers climbing. While there are more than a few streaming services now, Disney and Netflix seem to be the two biggest players currently battling to keep eyes on the app and subscribers from leaving before the next billing cycle. Of these two streaming titans, which is the better stock for investors? Let's take a look. Let's start with what makes the headlines, subscriber numbers. Netflix ended 2021 with about 222 million subscribers, while Disney ended 2021 with about 129 million subscribers to their Disney Plus streaming platform. So Netflix is winning, right? On to the next video. Well, not so fast. Subscriber numbers don't tell the whole story. Let's take a look at some other metrics. For a long time, Netflix was the place to go to watch old favorites like Friends or The Office. However, as other streaming services have launched, they have decided to keep their old favorites for themselves. Netflix either needs to find hidden gems like Cobra Kai or Manifest, or they have to produce their own content like Squid Games, Bridgerton, and Stranger Things, which is expensive and means that they need to raise subscription prices. This price issue played a major role in Morningstar assigning a fair value estimate of $305 a share and our three-star rating. It's hard to see how pricing increases won't have an effect on whether a customer decides to keep the service once the show of the moment has been binged. Disney, on the other hand, has a four-star rating and a fair value estimate of $170 per share based on realigned segments and lower losses from streaming. Of course, Disney is not just their Disney Plus streaming service. They also are dealing with challenges presented by cord cutting, which affects the revenue of ESPN, lower attendance to their parks due to COVID-19, and while the Marvel Cinematic Universe gets people to the theater more than any other property, audiences haven't returned to the theaters at the 2019 levels. Another factor to consider here is the economic moat. Netflix has a narrow moat based on the data that they are able to gather from their 220 million subscribers. Streaming video allows Netflix to determine how long people are on the app, how much of any show or movie they watch, and they can also use it to improve their service and even decide what kinds of shows and movies to produce next. Now, Disney has built themselves a wide moat that includes not just streaming, but theatrical movies, cable and network TV, and theme parks. While network ratings have been on the decline and people talk about cord cutting, about 120 million households are still subscribing to cable and watching network TV. Disney is in the TV game with ESPN, ABC, FX, and the Disney Channel. On the movie side, Marvel Studios, Pixar, Lucasfilm, Disney Animation, Disney Live Action Movies, and 20th Century are studios under the Disney umbrella. Not to mention that the Disney library is packed with beloved characters with cross-generational appeal that range from Cinderella to Moana to Darth Vader to Captain America to Buzz Lightyear, all of whom can be seen in person at Disney parks across the world. 
In addition to playing in theaters and on TV, all of these movies and TV shows can be watched via streaming on Disney+, ESPN+, and Hulu+, which consumers can subscribe to individually or bundle all together. All of this taken together means that Disney has multiple levers for revenue in addition to their streaming service, including theme parks, character merchandise, theatrical box office, and cable TV. Compare that to Netflix, which has two levers for revenue, increasing subscriber numbers and increasing prices on those subscribers. However, increasing prices might cause those subscriber numbers to drop. In the end, both Netflix and Disney have their ups and downs but when it comes to investing, Disney's wide moat and diversified revenue stream will keep the company spinning while the streaming world churns. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.